Broadcasting live from the Wellness Wonderland, you're listening to the Wellness Wonderland Radio. I'm Katie, and each week I chat with the most inspirational people on the planet on how to stay inspired in all areas of life. As you listen, feel free to tweet at me, at Katie Dalebout, or use the hashtag Wellness Wonderland. I'd love to hear your aha moments. So grab your headphones and listen on the go, or cuddle up with a notebook as we dive in deep with authentic conversations right here in Wonderland. Hi, you guys. Welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Katie, and I'm so excited for today's episode, as always, but it's just really a gem. Melissa A. Fabello is the guest on the show today, and she, if you don't know her, she's the managing editor of Everyday Feminism, and she's a scholar. She's studying human sexuality, body acceptance, and eating disorder recovery, and we get into that a little bit in today's episode, but her work is fascinating. She's one of the smartest people I've ever spoken with, and I really am so happy that she came on the show and shared a lot of what she's learned and her experience and her journey and what she's doing now. It's a really fantastic episode. But before we get into that, I want to just say that my book is out. It is out. It's been about a week since it's been out. It came out April 5th, just a couple days ago. And I was in New York for the book launch and for my live podcast that I hosted. And some of you guys were there. It was so much fun. And then for my book launch party, which was also amazing. And it was so great to meet so many listeners of the podcast and actually get to connect with you guys in person. So it's not just a one-way conversation. That was so fantastic. And I said this at the live podcast, and I think I said it in my, at my book launch, although I wanted to, and I'm not actually sure it came out this way. But what I meant to say was, that is why I do this. So what I mean is, interacting with you guys in person, getting to hang out with the people that I have on the podcast as guests in person, and that sense of community is why I do this. It's why I spend my time recording podcasts. It's why I do this work. It's because it's so much fun to bring people together and get to meet people talking about cool ideas, talking about what we're talking about in the show, and really have support and community. I think it's so important. And above that, it's so much fun. So thank you so much to everyone who came out and supported that. I'll be going to Los Angeles to LA at the end of May. And more info about that coming soon, but just keep that on your mind that if you live over there, hopefully I'll get to meet you in person. I've never been to California, so I'm really excited. So if you live in Los Angeles, let me know. Um, Send me a message. Send me a tweet, something. Let me know. Get in touch. Now let's talk about my book very quickly. So my book, Let It Out, A Journey Through Journaling, just came out, like I said, last week. And it's crazy that I have a book out. It is so much fun to have a book out because people get to have their own experience with the book. It's not just mine anymore. And that is so much fun to see. I've been seeing your selfies with the book. I've been seeing you guys journaling with the book. And it's been so cool to see you guys have your own experience with reading the book and how you choose to use it, how you choose to incorporate the exercises in the book and your life. For those of you who don't know or are new to the show, I published a book with Hay House this month and it is called Let It Out, A Journey Through Journaling and it's 55 journal exercises. And I've been saying it's like a scavenger hunt for your mind. So there are tools for getting you organized, tools to help you feel feelings, tools to help reveal things to yourself through your intuition. It's a really fun 
book that's super interactive and really was so much fun to write and then so much fun now to have it out in the world and see other people writing through the book. And I think journaling is for everyone and this was my response to a lot of people being like, well, I'm not a writer or I wouldn't know what to say if I sat down to journal. This gives you prompts and tools to help anyone get started with journaling and just check it out and see if it's it's fun for you. It also has some personal essays from me in it where I discuss why I came up with these particular topics to focus on with journaling and how I came up with these ideas and examples of how I use them in my life. So check it out. It's available at Barnes and Noble. It's available at Amazon. It's available at your local bookstore. And if you go into your local bookstore and it's not there, go ahead and just ask them to order it. It really helps me out and it helps get the book to more people. And if they don't have it, that means it's sold out. So asking them to order it would be fantastic. So any bookstore can order it for you. So do that or order it on Amazon or order it on Barnes and Noble. And if you did order it on Amazon, It would be so helpful if you could leave a review on Amazon of what you thought of the book. That would be really great. And while we're talking about reviews, you might as well leave a review. Hop on over to iTunes, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Amazon, and leave a little review on the podcast. That would be super cool. So leave some reviews if you want to support me. Check out the book. I know you guys have been hearing me talking about pre-orders for a long time, but now that the book is out, you're going to still hear me talking about it because this is just the beginning. I'm just beginning to start talking about the book and promoting the book because it's finally out. It's something that I've worked on for basically two years. I, I knew I got the book deal two years ago, and so it's really been a labor of love, and I hope you guys like the book. So far, everyone seems to be liking it, which is amazing, and thank you so much to everyone who pre-ordered, everyone who bought the book, everyone who came to the book launch, and everyone who's left a review so much. They really are so helpful to helping other people find the book in Amazon, so if you could leave a review really quick, that would be great. And another thing that's really cool is our Facebook community, our Facebook crew for the listeners of the podcast. So if you want to join that, if you haven't already, be sure to do that. You can just click on the album art and make sure you join the Facebook crew. And another really great way to stay in touch with new episodes is to subscribe on your phone So, or however you listen to the podcast. Just subscribe. That way the episodes automatically get downloaded and, again, really help support the show. And the third way to stay connected is to sign up for my email list. And when you sign up for my email list, you also get the Quick Start Guide to Living in Wellness Wonderland. So the Quick Start Guide includes all my favorite podcasts that I listen to all my favorite videos, my favorite books, my favorite foods. It's like basically Katie's favorite things, just like Oprah, you know? So check that out. Make sure you're on the list. I think most of you are, but I just wanted to mention that because I haven't mentioned it in a while. I think that's everything I could possibly tell you to sign up for. Keep in touch with me on the social media. Keep in touch with Melissa. Send her a message after the show. Tweet at her because she's awesome. So let's get into that. I'm going to stop rambling. I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and subscribing and joining the Facebook book, Facebook group and buying the book, you know, all of the things. Just do all of the things. Love you guys so much. Talk to you soon. Welcome back, everyone. I am so, so psyched for today's conversation. Melissa Fabello is here in the Wellness Wonderland. She's a sexual educator, 
body image and eating disorder activist and media literacy vlogger. She is the managing editor at Everyday Feminism, and she is so cool. She works in a lot of different things and wears a lot of different hats and uses social media to promote activism for body image and advocacy for feminism. And she's just way, way, way cool. She's a one of the smartest people I know. She's a doctoral candidate working on her PhD. She just told me she's working on her dissertation in human and sexuality, human sexuality studies, which I'm so excited to dive into and hear more about. Um, and her research interest is in how the onset of eating disorders affects psychosexual development, which I'm so excited to learn more about. It's just so what a really, really cool interest to be focusing on. And in that vein, she works closely with the National Eating Disorders Association. And she's here today to talk to me, and I couldn't be happier. So thank you so much for doing this podcast and hanging out with me today, Melissa. Oh, thank you. You made me sound a lot cooler than I am in real life. So thank you. That's- no, you're really cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Thanks. <laughs> Yay. Okay, cool. Well, let, I'm sure you know you you've had to tell your story on on multiple podcasts, and I know it can kind of be a drag to to kind of tell the story. But your story is so interesting, and I would love to zoom the lens back a bit and how you came to feminism and began to identify as a feminist and your story with your eating disorder. If you could just kind of take us back. I think it's such a good groundwork to getting into the rest of your work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that um, it's funny. I was just talking to someone last night about feminism and like how we find feminism and how usually it's that feminism finds us. And Mm. um, that was definitely my experience. Um, So the short answer is that when I was in my early to mid twenties, my, I don't know, maybe I was 22, 23 years old. Uh, I was in a very emotionally abusive relationship with someone who oftentimes, although not always, but did often use my body as a point of, um, uh, the emotional abuse, like it would use my body as a way to say mean things about me basically. And it, to be honest, it was a little bit more rare than some of the other things that he would pick apart, but, um, it clearly had an effect on me because when we broke up, um, I knew that I wasn't going to see him for about three months. And so my first kind of thought was I'm going to go on a diet and I am going to prove him wrong basically. Cause he would always say stuff like, do you really think you look good naked? Which is just like a really bizarre thing for someone who's sleeping with you to say, but you know, um, and things like that. Uh, and when he broke up with me, he ended up dating someone who was thinner than I was. Um, and that just, I don't know, I guess it really bothered me. So I went on a diet. I think that it's, you know, most people's eating disorder story is that they went on a diet uh, and that diet spun out of control. That's a pretty common narrative. Um, that's yeah. Right. And that's what happened to me. Um, and it was interesting because up until that point I had had a really healthy relationship with my body. I mean, I have bad days. We all have bad days. That's normal. But for the most part, like I didn't really think that much about food. I didn't think that much about my body. I was just like, yeah, here I am walking around liking myself. Like I just, it, it, I had never really thought that much about it. So this really kind of threw, I think obviously an eating disorder always throws our lives off course, but like it really did throw off everything that I 
had felt about my body and everything that I had, you know, kind of been. Um, and, uh, around this time after the relationship ended, um, a couple friends of mine just so happened, it was like really a coincidence just so happened to give me a couple of books, uh, that were feminist in nature. Um, one of my friends was just like, Hey, I really like this book. I think you'd like it. Like, and then another friend was like, Hey, you went through some like really shitty things in your last relationship. I think this book might help. And when I read them, I was like, Oh, Oh, I see where this is going. Like I see this feminism thing as a thing that I had never really considered because I think like a lot of people who come to feminism that, uh, probably my entire life I had been a feminist, but I never actually identified as a feminist. I didn't actually really, I guess, know what it was. And so I think it was more an introduction of like, this is what feminism is. And it is the answer to everything that has ever gone wrong in your life. It was basically like <laughs> how I felt about it. Like, it was like, this is the answer. Um, and as I got into more intersectional feminism and just understanding the ways that multiple systems of oppression work together. I was like, Oh, this is everything that's wrong with the whole world. Like this actually, like everything that has gone wrong, that feels like an injustice actually is an injustice and is socially constructed to be that way. So yeah, really I joke sometimes as if feminism is like, um, a born again religion to me. Like it, it came to me and I was like, I need to spread the gospel of this amazing, wonderful thing that has changed my life and helped me um, ha- give me a framework really to see the world. So that's the short, that's the short story. That's fantastic. That's perfect because your story is amazing, but I have so many other things that I want to <laughs> ask you about. So I'm glad that everyone listening has now the, the version of it. It's so funny. I'm like your, I'm like your stalker. Cause when you're like, we didn't see, we weren't going to see each other for three months. I almost interjected and I was like, well, they were high school teachers and it was going to be summer. <laughs> like I knew the whole thing. <laughs> That's real. Yes. We were high school teachers and you broke out with me on the last day of school. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's real. <laughs> so if anyone's wondering what the three months was, it was summer. Yeah. Um, okay. I, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think there's, there's so many things that I relate to and I'm sure a bunch of people listening will as well. And, you know, one thing I want to pick up on in your story, and this isn't unique to you, but I think a lot of people who who struggle with eating disorders and then are in recovery and whether it's feminism or whatever really it was to kind of heal them in a, in a certain way or help them out of that part of their life, like you said, it really changes the trajectory of your life. And even though you, you I've heard you talk about this before, like even if you are recovered or recovering, you're not going to be who you were before that happened. It was a really life-changing thing. And and I know that 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 was definitely the case for me. And and for you, you know, your eating disorder obviously has impacted your career trajectory and, and what you're doing today and for myself as well. And I want, I see that so much. Um, and I've talked about this, you know, with my friend, um, Christy, you were on her, her podcast actually. And we were saying too, we, we had a conversation about this where like, not only just with in being in an activism role, but a lot of people who have had eating disorders will find them when their careers are kind of in this malleable place, um, in their early twenties or, you know, when they're younger, they could find careers in food or in health or in wellness or in feminism or, you know, in eating disorder recovery. And it really can 
be kind of jarring to think how that event can really impact your your life and, and what you're doing in the world. And it really kind of th- shows that thread of, you know, everything happens for a reason. But I'd love if you could just kind of speak on that and how experiences in our lives can really change the tra- trajectory of our life and our career. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. I was talking to my partner recently about this and I was saying, you know, that I care about eating disorders deeply and I care about body image a lot. Um, and I, and I was saying that, you know, I was like, I'm never going to be able to escape now that part of my life. Right. And, and it was something that, you know, I had been thinking for a while, but I hadn't really said out loud, but like, was just this idea of like, yeah, this is now, obviously it's part of my experience and it's part of my identity, but now it's inescapable because mm-hmm. it's like everyone that I talk to, like, that's what they know me for. And that's what they want to talk about. And it's like, I have to revisit it again and again and again, and it can be really, really difficult, I think. Um, but I also think that, yeah, there's something to be said about being able to, Turn something that was hard for you um, into something productive. So when people ask me about sexuality studies, you know, like, oh, you're studying sex. Like, why? <laughs> like, that's a, of all the things you could study, why sex? Um, and I always kind of say, well, I think that growing up, I had personally a lot of issues. I think we all do a lot of issues with coming into my sexual self and understanding who I am as a sexual person and as a woman um, sexually and all of these things. I was like, and because it was the thing I struggled with the most, maybe it was the thing that I was drawn to the most. Like I wanted to understand it so I could understand myself. And I had a friend, um, when I did my undergrad who he was studying religion and his experience. And he had said to me that, you know, that he thinks or thought, I don't know if he still thinks this, but that he thought that, um, people studied the thing that, gave them the most difficulty in their lives. And he said, you know, he had a difficult or complicated relationship with religion growing up and that that's what made him want to kind of understand it. And at the time I was studying English education and I was kind of like, I don't know, know. like books don't give me grief. Like I was like, I don't really know that that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when I realized how often, you know, I would write my papers, yeah, I'd be writing, you know, uh, like literary analysis, but how often I would focus it on gender or on sex, um, in novels or when I was doing, you know, any kind of like social science, I was always talking about the same things again, gender and sex. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think it's cool. I think it's a nice thing. I think that it really says something about people in general, about what they do or what they care about. Cause obviously not all people are doing careers that are necessarily directly related to like their passions. But I think that when you talk to people what their passions are, a lot of those passions are born of their own negative experiences and being like, I don't want anyone else to ever go through this. So I'm going to try to like stop it for the future because I can't save myself, but maybe I can help somebody else. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad that, that we're having this conversation because I haven't really heard you speak on that or just really people speak on, on that piece of work, you know, in general. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's like that quote, you know, we teach what we need to learn. And for me, I, I studied journalism in, in my undergrad. So I think I kind of went for the skill and then I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I had an eating disorder in college and then the passion kind of came second, um, where I was like, oh, I'll use those skills to be really loud about, you know, the things that are important to me and just kind of curate those, which anyone can do online now. And, 
And then that has grown and changed a ton as I've grown and changed a ton because I think in our 20s, and this is something else I, I wanted to ask you about anyways, I, I think our 20s are kind of like this second adolescence that, that no one really <laughs> tells you about and you, um, you're you growing and changing and figuring out what you're into and those experiences that might shape the rest of your life are are happening. But, but yeah, that's fascinating what you said about how it's now, it, it is a part of you and it would always have been a part of you. And I feel this way a lot myself, but, but we're reliving it all the time. And I was just thinking about this earlier this morning, actually, about how, you know, it could have, it was such a short, you know, period in my life in relation to, you know, the rest of my life, but I'm still talking about it and it's still affecting me and I'm still healing from it. You know, it wasn't like that long ago. Um, and so I think that that's valid, but, but yeah, I think it just really goes to show that the experiences of our lives are, are so valuable to, to shaping what we do. And, and, and so anyway, so going back to what I was saying before about, you know, how I heard, I've heard you talk about this, but you turned 30 this year and you have spoken about your twenties in a similar way that, that I feel, I think where they're this really, really interesting time. And I know I feel that way. I'm 25 now. So I'm like in the halfway point and I like, I really do. I feel like it's like, I'm going through my, my adolescence and I'm, and I'm changing so much. And I think I maybe would have expected to be perhaps more settled down by now or more not settled down like how people think of that term but just within myself but I think I'm constantly changing all the time and almost that my eating disorder in my early 20s kind of set me back and now I'm kind of growing up in in that way and a lot with with sex as well I think it can kind of hold you back. And so then your experiences are, cause you're so wrapped up in that. And so your experiences can be different than other people your age. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I think your twenties are just a really interesting time. And I think that part of why that is, I think there's a lot of factors that, that make that happen. I think part of them is, I don't know, you know, how old your parents are, but my parents are in their sixties. So, um, my parents were born in the fifties. Um, and, you know, really came of age, I guess, in the 60s and 70s. But my parents are of a generation where, like, you know, they were married when they were in their early 20s. They, yeah, you know, yeah. were trying for children, like, very soon after. Um, they, you know, they had, they got jobs, like, right out of high school. Or my, my mom went to a semester of college. But they, you know, like, they they had this... Um, kind of life trajectory that I think was very typical of their generation. Mm -hmm. And growing up with them made me think that that's how my life was going to go. Like, okay, that's how my mom and dad did it. And that's what they're teaching me is what's normal. Um, and so, okay, I guess that's what's normal. But then I think our generation has had a very, very different experience, um, for a lot of reasons. And I think that it becomes really confusing because we grew up with expectations that, weren't actually realistic given the social climate that we ended up growing up in. Um, and I find a lot of people, so many people in their twenties say the same thing. Like they're like, I thought that my life was going to be settled. Like I thought that I would have the career that I wanted. Like a lot of people have career changes in their twenties and that's like mind blowing to us. It's like, you know, and I did it too. Like I was a high school teacher and then I was like, I'm out of here. And I was like, I, this is what I wanted my whole life. And then I finally got to that point and I was like, I'm not happy. I need to do something different. Um, and that's just not, I remember my parents being like, are you out of your mind? But I was like, I'm going to quit my job. You know, like I was like, I have this nice full-time job, like a lot of job security. I'm going to quit. <laughs> like I'm out because I don't want to do this anymore. Um, 
And uh, I think that a lot of people, I like what you said about kind of like a second adolescence. Yeah. It's like going through puberty again. And that was a terrible Mm -hmm. time. And I think that your twenties are also in some ways terrible. They're not completely terrible, but in some ways they are because it's very emotionally overwhelming to feel like you don't know yourself. Like that's how I kept thinking. I'd be like, I thought I knew who I was, but then I went through a lot of change. Um, it went through, had a lot of experiences. Um, and yeah, like who I was, I became a different person. And so my interests changed or my passions changed the things that I wanted to be changed. Um, and that's, uh, incredibly confusing experience to have, I think. And so I think when people talk about quarter life crises, I think that that's real. I think that that's a real yeah. thing that people, that people experience. And I think that we all have things that we, <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think that we all have ideas around why that is like what happened to me that made it so I got off track. But I think that most people actually are doing the same thing, thinking that it's them. And what did I do when it's really just like so many other factors coming into play, but it's definitely a, yeah, it is a really, I would like to definitely affirm and validate that it's extremely common experience. And that many, many people that I speak to in their twenties say the same thing. Like they're like, I feel like my life is out of control. I feel like I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, don't worry. That's normal. As far as I can tell, because everybody, I, we can all just take a deep breath. (laughs) All going to be okay. It's confusing. And you're, you are, you're coming into your own, you're figuring out who you are. I think that, um, there was a time, you know, a generation before us when, you know, by the time you were 30, you were supposed to like really have your shit together, like substantially romantically. Um, you know, like, not necessarily buying a house, but like staying in one place, like all yeah, of these things, career. Exactly yeah. your career that you were supposed to have all of these things. Like, okay, they're set now. And now I'm going to like live my midlife, you know, mm-hmm. comfortable or whatever. Um, but it's been most people that I know that hasn't been their experience. I will say though, the light at the end of the tunnel, not that like magically this year came and I turned 30 and everything was fine. But, um, most of the people that I know who are in my you know, close age range or in their thirties are in a much calmer place. Like they're like, okay, I do have things settled. I do know what I'm doing. Um, and who I am. So it definitely comes, but it comes with a little bit of a, I don't want to say a price, but it definitely comes with a little bit of turbulence. Um, but it happens. That sounds really nice. Like I'm really excited for that time. I think, Thank you so much for just kind of validating that. And I think, you know, for the people who are listening in their 30s, they'll be like, all right, yep. And then, you know, people like me in, in the middle of it, in the midst of it, in their 20s can, can feel like we're, like I said, in that, in that sac- second adolescence. And I think, you know, the reason why it might feel a bit more intense now is that the actual adolescence, when you're actually a teenager, you don't have the social pressure uh, or that modeling from our the previous generation of where you should be, everybody is like feeling their hormones and like feeling lots of feelings and all over the place. But, um, and you're supported because you're around people all the time because you're in high school or you're, you know, living at home for sure. And, um, you know, you're not when you're, when you're my age or when you're, you know, in the midst of it. So we need to have support like this, like these conversations and um, amp up the self-care, which is something else I wanted to talk to you about. That's a good um, that's a good transition, I guess, is you have this fantastic video about self-care. And I would love if you could just talk about self-care, why it's important, especially in the recovery process, because I think for a lot of people, 
um, not even recovery process, but I just think like, you know, you don't have to have even identified with having an eating disorder at all, but just diet culture kind of makes mm-hmm. self-care seem like it's exercising and like meal prep or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> and that's like, so not self-care. I mean, exercising can feel good, but you know, I would love if you could kind of share your thoughts on self-care and then also share like how you do self-care in your life right now. Yeah. Self-care is the greatest. I think so women, there's a lot of theory around women in particular, um, and women's moral development around this idea of like, what it means to be a good person is to take care of everybody else before me. Mm -hmm. Um, and we see this a lot in women in general, right. But also in activist circles, a lot of this, I have to take care of the revolution before I can take care of myself. And it's like, the revolution is not going to happen if everybody is trying to take care of the revolution and not themselves. So we definitely need to take care of ourselves. And self-care gets this like weird reputation. Like when you talk about self-care, people are like, are like, Oh, that's selfish or that's weird. Or that's like too like hippy dippy. Like people are like, that's like crunchy granola shit. And you're like, what are you yeah, talking about? Maybe it needs a new name or like a rebrand. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely needs a rebrand, but it's like, no, this is, it's literally just taking care of yourself. Like there's like, I don't understand how anybody can look at that and be like, that sounds like something I don't want to do. Like, right. okay. Um, when I'm sick, I want someone to take care of me when I am well, I don't need anyone to take care of me. I guess I need people to support me, but like someone still needs to take care of me and that has to be me. So that's what I'm going to do. That's kind of how I think about self-care. It's just taking care of yourself. Um, and that can take a lot of different forms. I think that there's just kind of your day to day self-care, which for me is a lot of just like being aware of what's going on in my body. Like if I'm tired, then I'm like, okay, I'm tired. I, I clearly need to take a break from work because I'm tired. So I'm lucky. I work from home. Um, and my hours are flexible. So if I'm tired in the middle of the day, I could actually take a nap. That's not what most people can do though. But like, you could be like, I'm going to go for an energizing walk, or I'm going to get up and walk around the office for a second because like my body is tired. Um, a lot of people will like go for caffeine, which is an option, but like in the long run, not going to be as helpful. Um, but yeah, just a lot of like, okay, this is what my body needs. Oh, I need water. I have a headache, right? Like I must need to drink more water. Little things like that are self-care because it's thinking about what you need in the moment. There's also self-care like um, that it's like when you start to feel stressed and taking care of that as soon as that feeling comes up. And a lot of that is about understanding how stress presents in your body. Like some people might feel really warm when they get stressed out. Some people might feel it in their chest. Some people feel it in their stomach. Some people feel it like in their, like their muscles tense or their shoulders tense up, um, or like they'll kind of clench their jaw. So thinking about, okay, what physical signs are there that I'm feeling stressed out and like, how quickly can I notice them? And then what can I do to relax? And that can be as simple as like, for me, I might, um, make a cup of tea and just like drink it. Or I might be like, okay, this is a time for me to call someone and take a break from this work that's stressing me out. Or I need to, sometimes I do like arts and crafts. <laughs> no, I'm not good at it, but I'll like make someone a card or like draw someone a picture, you know, like whatever it is that makes my body feel relaxed again, that's self-care. Then there's also like preventative self-care. Um, you know, if I know that I'm going to be really, really overwhelmed over something that I have to sit down and say, okay, how can I prevent myself from getting into a So I was just saying to you earlier, actually, before we even started recording that I was sick this week and that obviously getting sick always throws you off because now you're taking time off of work and then you have to catch up on that. And then I'm writing a dissertation. So now I have to catch up on that. 
Um, there's errands to run all the time. So now when do those happen? So I was thinking about that yesterday where I was like, Oh my gosh, I have so many things I have to do this weekend. How am I going to fit them all in? And I was feeling really overwhelmed and it was like, okay, so I have to think about it. How can I schedule my time in a way that's realistic rather than like, you know, something that's going to be impossible. How do I make sure that I take breaks during the day? How do I think, let me think about what I'm going to eat so that, you know, I make sure that I'm like well fed. Um, cause if some people will, as far as food goes, eating disorder or not, some people, as far as food goes, if they're not really taking self-care, they'll either not eat or they'll be like, I, I don't have time. I guess I'll just order, you know, whatever. And it might not be like what makes them feel good. So there's also that, but then it's just like, okay, I'm going to, I go to a chiropractor once a month. I don't have a bad back. You know what I mean? But I go to a mm-hmm. chiropractor and I check in and I say, Hey, I'm having this weird thing with my hip. Can you help me with that? You know, like, or I do yoga every single day. I mean, obviously there are some days that I don't, but like for the most part, I do yoga every day. Um, and that's just to like, keep myself feeling good. Um, it's not like, Oh, I have a problem now. Let me go fix it. And I think that that's, I have a life coach slash therapist. She's both. And like, I'm not in a place where like, I'm not going to be able to like function without one, but it's like, just nice to like, keep yourself accountable. Like, Oh, I have to go see this person every couple of weeks and tell them about my life. Um, so yeah, I think that a lot of people are like, Oh, it's time for self care when they're at a point where they're like at a real low point. And it's like, no, you need to be doing self-care all along so that you can try to prevent yourself from getting to that point. When I started my dissertation, someone had said to me something along the lines of like, oh, you're probably going to cry a lot. Like it's very, it's so overwhelming and stressful that you're probably going to have like nervous breakdowns all the time. And I was like, not if I can help it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there are going to be times that I'm going to be overwhelmed and probably cry. And yes, that has happened, but it's like, no, if that's happening once a week, like some, something's wrong with my process. Something's wrong with the way I'm taking care of myself because that should not be, that should not be my like regular, like go-to state of being. <laughs> so, um, it's like a lot of just thinking about how can I keep myself in a place that feels healthy and that is physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever that means for you. But I mean, it's an awesome thing. I feel so much better about my life being able to take self-care. Like I, I don't understand people who don't. It's just, it's mind blowing to me. And people are like, oh no, I don't take time for myself. I'm like, oh, that must be a really hard life for you then. Yeah. And it's like, you can't give what you don't have. So you have to take care of yourself to be able to be, to do your dissertation that will help lots of people with the research or to coach people or to mm-hmm. share a message or to do anything, to be there for your family and your friends. And um, I completely agree and concur and, and do the same for myself. And I know that, you know, when I do feel off, it means I haven't been managing my mm-hmm. life properly, which is my self-care. And that I think it's your responsibility to do self-care and to manage, you know, your energy. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's something that we need to hear a ton, especially as women and just as people in this really fast-paced society that we live in. Yeah, it's true. So you mentioned your PhD, and I'm so fascinated by it, and I would love to talk a bit about your research, and you're probably like, oh, I was just working on it, and then now I'm your break, and I'm making you talk about it again, but it's it's so fascinating, and I read in your bio that you're talking about how the onset of an eating disorder affects psychosexual development, and I would love if you could talk a little bit about how that's going and where you are with it. Yeah, sure. I, um, so that I wrote that when I was vague about what I was doing. So more specifically now that I'm actually like in it and doing the research. Yeah. It's a little more specific now, which is I'm looking at, um, more specifically 
how women with various anorexia um, diagnoses experience what we call skin hunger. Skin hunger is um, the capacity to which we all feel a need for human touch. So when you think about like sexual desire, like sexual desire is like, or sexual drive is like, this is my capacity for how much like sex I want. Whereas skin hunger is, I want to hold hands. I want to cuddle. I want to hug. I want those things. Um, so yeah, so I'm looking at, you know, basically, yeah, how, or whether or not, I don't know yet, whether or not anorexia in particular has an effect on, um, our ability to feel skin hunger. Um, because a lot of research finds that women with anorexia are sexually avoidant, um, and don't like to have sex for various reasons. And so I'm basically wondering, okay, if that's true, then is it also true that they don't want to be touched period? Like, is that it? Like what, it, like, what it, like, what is it really? So yeah. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the short version. Um, but it's going well. I mean, I'm in the process of putting together a dissertation proposal, which is like basically your first three chapters of your dissertation. And you eventually ask, <laughs> you propose and you say, I would like to do a study on this and you know, you, it has to be approved. So that's, that's step one. And it's, yeah, it is. It's really interesting. It's a, um, it's a interesting, it's interesting in a lot of ways. It's interesting partly because I'm in a sexuality program. And so that means that everybody that's in my program are experts in sex, but not experts in eating disorders. So it's, it's a really interesting conversation to be having with people who are in my field in that way, because yeah, because like they don't really think about eating disorders that much, um, and how they might possibly relate to sexuality. And in fact, the eating disorders field doesn't really do it very much either. Unfortunately, if you look, if you look for research on the intersection of eating disorders and sexuality, not a whole lot is out there because I think people, like I said, I think people in sexuality just aren't thinking about it. But I think people in eating disorders are, um, you know, like we have bigger fish to fry. Like we have like more important things to take care of right now, like keeping people alive. So it's not a priority. Um, So, yeah, so I'm like really excited to kind of dig in and um, I don't know, kind of like uncover like a lot of what that relationship looks like beyond what already exists, which is minimal and also um, narrow. It's narrowly focused. Mm, it's so fascinating. We'll have to do a follow-up interview after all the research is in. Yeah, and have some findings. About, yeah, and hear all about, you know, what the process was like for you and all of it. I can't wait to hear it. It sounds super fascinating. Hopefully I have something to say. I could just be like, oh, my study was inconclusive. Oh, you definitely will. <laughs> you're going to have like it, – you're going to learn so much about it. And, and Well, either way, I think it will be fascinating to hear about the whole process. So something else in your bio, I your bio alone was like so fascinating to me. And I was like, I want to ask her about this and that. <laughs> and something else um, that you said in there that you were doing or are doing is working with the National Eating Disorders Association and their collaboration to, or you're collaborating them with their anthology of finding a diverse group of narratives about um, eating disorders and memoir and in literature and kind of shifting that dominant paradigm. So I w- that was also fascinating. I've read many eating disorder memoirs, and like you said, they're very like white, middle-class focused. Mm-hmm. So 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I had gone through this like weird period of time where I just was like really into eating disorder memoirs. I was reading so many of Same, them. Me I too. Yeah, weird. And it was post eating disorder. I think a lot of people during their eating disorder get this like fascination. I, this was like way past it for me. I don't know. So I don't know what happened there, but I was real fascinated and I read a lot of eating disorder memoirs. Um, and I didn't start with some of the ones that you read. Uh, I don't know. Let's think. Wasted, obviously, like everyone's read that. Um, Biting Anorexia, Purge, Thin. There's so many. Oh, what's that one with the little girl? Stick figure? Uh, You did read a lot. Yeah, I read a lot of them. But the one that's actually the best is um, called Not All Black Girls Know How to Eat. Like anybody who hasn't, who's into eating disorder memoirs Mm -hmm. and like I don't know who those people are, but that's one to definitely, definitely read partly because it's from a different perspective finally. Um, but also it's just, to me, I think it was the most honest, um, eating disorder memoir that I've read because I think a lot of them follow the same, the same narrative arc. It's like the exact same story every time. Um, and I, I found like when I was reading them, sorry, just like cut you off, but I was just going to say that like, I found, I kind of did the same thing. Like after I'd been recovered or in the, you know, other half of the recovery process, I was really like wanting to just fast forward through the beginning and kind of get to the the end because the beginning is so like, it takes you back. And, um, and I, I, end. There's no end that's like, and now here's what recovery is. Right, exactly. It and then <laughs> And I kept thinking, like, I got to just push through these next few chapters, and then I'll get to the, you know, but this is what happened after and after, you know, and it's like the happily ever after. I just wanted to, like, read for that because I was like, I don't need to read this. I've been, I've done it. I've lived that, you know? Yeah, um, I don't want to go back to that place. But yeah. And then there is no, it's always, it always just ends. So exactly. Like, and then exactly. if there's, like, an afterward, it's like, right. yeah. Then I got out of the hospital and there, then there's some weird, you know, inspirational quote about recovery being a journey. But it's so like, short and the, yeah. the <laughs> meat of it is all like, yeah, it's all, it takes you out. You know, it's like, oh man, it's not. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty awful experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's weird. But anyway, so yeah, I did. I definitely noticed like, wait, a lot of these stories are the same and they're also coming from the same place. Um, anyway, so I had talked to the National Eating Disorder Association about it, and they were like, yeah, we've been thinking about the same thing, so we should um, do something about that because it's really a problem. Um, And, yeah, so it's mostly the project is currently out of my hands. Um, I came to the conclusion that as a white middle-class woman myself, it wasn't really my place to – I didn't really come to the conclusion. Other people also, other people came to the conclusion before I did um, and voiced that opinion. And then I was thought about it really hard and was like, actually, yes, that's true. Um, that's not really my place to be the person to create such a thing. Um, because I think that marginalized populations are already creating their own stuff. They don't need, they don't need me to help them. They, uh, what I think that what I needed to do or what I did that maybe was helpful was, you know, to make sure that a organization that has power and money behind it understood this and like, um, worked with them about how to, how to go about fixing that. Because one of the biggest problems with the eating disorder field is that it's very white and it's very middle-class. It's very everything, everything, everything except for gender. Um, insofar as, you know, I think a lot of eating disorder stuff focuses on women. It doesn't focus on other gender minorities, but definitely focus on women. So, but besides that, everything is like 
yeah, white, straight, middle class, educated, thin women. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, those people have the most access to healthcare. Those people have the most access to um, media representations of eating disorders. Those people have. Those people aren't the people that really need the most help at this point. I mean, everybody needs help with an eating disorder for sure. Um, but that when the same people over and over and over again are getting that spotlight and getting to tell their story, but it's like the same story. Um, and each individual story is important and our stories are important to us and who we are and the people that love us, like definitely, but telling the same stories over and over again, does that really, uh, is that progress? Does that like move the field forward? Does that start to help people who are more marginalized than we are? And I think that that is, something that's really, really important to focus on is like, how are people of color experiencing eating disorders? How are people, um, who are working class experiencing eating disorders, people who are immigrants experiencing eating disorders, people who are queer, people who are trans, like, what about all those people? Like, where are their stories? Because they have eating disorders too. And a lot of that actually comes down to, you know, um, all these systems of oppression that like are working on us. Like there's definitely a feminist theory, viewpoint of part of the reason why eating disorders are so prominent among women and not other people is because of social factors. Like that's obviously there are biological and psychological factors too, but if it was solely a biological and psychological thing, why wouldn't it be happening to everybody? Why has it happened to women more often than anyone else? And a lot of that has to do with social factors and social factors also hurt other people. So, um, yeah, so it's just so important for, people who care about eating disorders to realize the ways in which their advocacy. And this is something that I've tried, been trying to think a lot about myself because I do it too, but that we, so not just people, we, myself included need to think a lot harder about the way that our eating disorder recovery advocacy is still focused on white middle-class women. Um, and that, that needs to change and that that advocacy needs to include other people and in fact, center other people so that those stories get told and that those people receive the help and the support that they need instead of it just being the same population over and over again, getting all the resources, you know? I would love to hear a little bit more about how your own thin privilege and race privilege has impacted your work and if you think that that it does. And then also, you know, for people of of all races and all genders, but there's mostly females listening to this. Um, how do you suggest people share these messages and want to be a louder voice in the feminist movement or a voice in general? How do you suggest people do that? Yeah, I think what's really important actually is what's more important, I think, than people who are marginalized, um, because people who are marginalized are talking and people who are marginalized are like, they're doing the work. The problem actually is that people who have privilege aren't stepping out of the way. People who, it's people who have privilege like myself, um, taking up a lot of space, taking up a lot of resources, taking up a lot of time and energy of other people and like leading things, for example, um, that is actually more the problem. So, um, I think that a lot of the, um, responsibility actually rests on the people of privilege. And I mean, we talk about this a lot, like in feminism, like in feminism, it's very clear that part of the problem, actually the the major problem is patriarchy. 
and that patriarchy um, as a system preferences men and that one of the things that we need to happen is for men to see that and for men to go, oh, right, I am given unfair social advantages. And in order to, to mitigate that, I have to give up some of the power that I have as a man so that women and other gender minorities can, can have some of that power. So like men, um, for example, I always really appreciate when, um, if a man is called to speak on a panel, the men who will say, well, are there women speaking on this panel? And making sure that, you know, I'm not going to participate in this unless there are women speaking on this panel also, or to say, I actually am not going to participate. And instead, here are some women who I suggest you call instead, right? Similarly, white people need to do the same thing for people of color, like need to say, okay, well, I, as a white person, people are going to listen to me, are more likely to listen to me because I'm white. So what do you do with that power? What do you do with the power of people listening to you? And one of those things that you can do as a white person is to say, hey, actually, I don't want to do this thing. Or, hey, um, I think that if we're going to put together, you know, whatever it is, um, whatever kind of event, here are some people who I think should be in charge instead of me. And I think, yeah, I think that it's, it's really our responsibility as people with privilege to have those conversations. I think I think it can be hard. And I also think that it can be, um, you know, it's a weird line. Like it's always, um, you never know because right. Like any group of people isn't a monolith. So like as a person with thin privilege, I want to talk about the way that our society is fat phobic and how that hurts people. Um, but it's like, uh, what's the line where now you're talking over people or for people rather than talking about, um, and that's always a hard thing. And so I think also just be trying to be in, trying to work, in allyship with people also means, you know, understanding that they're, you're, you know, you're going to mess up and that you're not a magically great person just because you're trying to work, um, you know, in that way, but that, yeah, really prioritizing, I think for people, people with privilege, really prioritizing, recognizing that that privilege exists and finding ways to hand over the torch that you were magically given at birth just by virtue of having privilege and handing that over to people who are equally deserving of it, but aren't given the chance because of, a because of oppression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think it's, it's probably hard to do that for, you know, let's use that white male speaking on the panel to step down when he's very qualified and like very Mm -hmm. awesome at what he does to give a, let's say a black female, um, you know, the, the floor. And I think that that's, that also shows how grounded he is in knowing, you know, he's had other chances and he will have more chances and to really use that as a social statement that's uh, by not speaking to to have a statement is is really powerful and I've never thought of it that way so thank you for sharing that yeah and I think I mean it definitely is a different nobody likes giving up power and I think that's something like we have to address too it's like yeah nobody likes giving up power um especially people of privilege who have been given power from birth um it's hard to give up um but yeah I think that it's I think that it's something something that I have to practice more myself um and something that I think more people of privilege need to think through also. 
Yeah, and I think when we're young, we're probably just so excited about opportunities, and we've you know we've worked so hard for opportunities that it's probably a little bit tougher. And I don't know if this is this is completely wrong, but you know maybe you know as we get a little bit older, it's easier to see like okay, you know we are all equal here and we were when we were young as well but maybe you're just have a little bit more distance from it and it's it's easier to to see these sorts of things and be able to to step down but I think either way it it needs to be done so it's really good to be talking about this so people know that that's really the best way to support it yeah um so with going back to to feminism a, a bit um when people want to um you know, if they wanted to speak about these things to people who maybe didn't really understand what feminism is. Like you have this great video and I I think it actually might be a little bit older, but you talk about um, how you can be a feminist and still like Taylor Swift. And I think like since that, since that video, like she's come out and like said, I actually didn't know what feminism was. And, you know, a lot of people are feminists like Taylor Swift, you know, was without even knowing that they were, you know, just by giving a voice to different people um, and validating other emotions. But how can you help people who maybe don't understand what the term is without doing it in a pushy way or without being, um, you know, super forceful with it and turning them off to it altogether? I personally, I, and I, this is not obviously, I don't speak for all feminists, but for myself, I personally think that what is more important to me is that people are doing feminist work rather than whether they call themselves a feminist or not. I think if someone is doing, you know, work for uh, equality or for justice, that's awesome. I don't care what they call themselves. It doesn't matter to me. I think that when we start to push people to identify a certain way, um, that is always going to be tricky because no matter what the identity is, like it's, it's not really our place to push identities on people. It's just not in any like aspect of life. Like your identity is, is yours. It's yours to choose. And I think that for people, I, cause I, you get a lot of the, I'm not a feminist, but, and they'll say something very feminist and you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. I'm not sure you know what that word means. Um, I think sometimes just reminding people of what feminism is is helpful. Real quick right now, kind of say your definition of it, because I think it's so awesome, and I'd like people to hear it. Uh, let me think. I always kind of make it up off the cuff, so let's oh, see. Good. All right. <laughs> I feel like feminism to me is a sociopolitical movement that is aimed at um, economic, political, social, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, financial. Wait, did I say that? Yeah, economic. Um, justice for pe- all people. Um, but that has a particular focus on gender. So all anti-oppression work, I think anti-racism or like LGBTQ rights, all of that stuff is all, you know, anti-oppression work. Um, and I think that all anti-oppression work has to take into consideration that people hold multiple identities. So I'm a woman, but I'm also a queer woman. I'm also a middle-class woman. I'm also an educated woman. So, um, what are the, so we all have to care about all of it <laughs> or else it won't, or else it won't work. Um, so, but that feminism is, is more particularly focused on patriarchy as the, um, as a system, um, and the ways in which patriarchy are harmful to society. But I think, yeah, that's kind of it. I think too many people will take it and they'll go, oh, well, def- you know, feminism is just believing in women's equality. And I hate when people say that because like, that's actually not all that it is. 
And like when you, I feel like when people do that, like you are a feminist as long as you believe that women are equal. Like, well, no, like, because a lot of people would say that a lot of people would say women are equal, but like do really horribly oppressive things. So they're not feminists. Um, and I, I don't, you know, it's like this weird line where you don't want to scare people away from feminism, but you also want people to know that feminism is a serious thing. It's like, it's not just like, you know, a cute t-shirt. Feminism is, um, it's a movement. It's, it's, it's wanting change. It's wanting to create change and finding ways in your everyday life to create those changes ever so subtly to create change. Um, and, but back to your actual original question. Yeah. I, I got that off track. <laughs> no, I think though that letting people, educating people kind of slowly pushing them slowly can be helpful. I think that when we try too hard to like throw like really radical leftist feminist ideas at people, that's scary for people because you're basically taking everything that they knew their whole lives or thought that they knew and telling them it was wrong and that they're wrong for believing in it. And anytime you do that to someone, that's, it's a, it's a shock. And a lot of people will become extremely defensive that you just said that their way of life is terrible. (laughs) So And that's really kind of what you're doing. Even when you just point out and say say to someone, oh, what you just said was racist, the immediate response people are going to have is, I'm not a racist. When really the response should be, oh, I didn't know that. Thanks for pointing that out. I won't do it again. Like that's like, that's the only, to me, that's the only okay response to someone telling you what you did was racist was to go, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, thank you. Um, But people very quickly, like, I'm not a racist because they feel like you're pushing back on I don't know who they are as a person. And I think the same thing happens when you try to force people to identify as a feminist. So, um, yeah, I think that giving people, letting people work at their own pace, um, and educating them slowly about what feminism is, is probably your best, your best bet when it comes to folks who just don't know that just don't know. And also just, um, making feminism, not a bad word. It's been like, Oh, that's very feminist of you. Or, Oh, are you a feminist? Just like asking like, or making it like, not lighthearted, but not something that's like, oh, feminism. Like, it's a bad word. I think it also just be helpful in general to feminism as a movement. Thank you for sharing your definition of, of feminism. I, I think that's really important for people to hear. And, and what I really take away from your whole answer to the question of, you know, how to share the message is is really, you know, be the change, you know, be yeah. what you wish to, to see in the world. And, um, and it's more about, it's not about the label, it's about who you are and how you, act, the actions that you take. Yeah. Um, so that's that's fantastic. So I think with feminism for me and, and you really with your story, the the kind of opening to that was the body image work. And I think people doing body image work, it's very easy to identify as feminists because it's such a it's so intertwined and it's it's so connected. And and you talk a lot about recovery being a process. And so being recovered, I would love to know. You know, do you still have you know, what I call bad body image days. And if, if you do, or when you did, you know, how do you handle that and, and shift out of it? And do you have any tips for people, um, to shift out of it and not make it ruin their whole day and allow it to hold them back? Yeah, that's so important. I think it's also really important to, to say that negative body image days, bad body image days are normal. Like, if you never had a bad body image day, something else might be wrong. Like that's a normal human experience to feel uncomfortable in your body sometimes. That's normal. So I think 
sometimes when we think about recovery, we have this really weird idea that like magically we are going to love our bodies every single day and we're never going to have a negative thought. And it's like, did you feel like that before you had an eating disorder? Like that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's just, that's unrealistic. Of course you're going to have days where you're like, Oh, I don't like the way my body looks today. That's okay. Um, so one thing is just being really compassionate with yourself when you have a bad body image day. Like I'm having a bad day. All right. Today is a sweatpants day because I don't, don't want to look at myself. Um, and also being cognizant and aware of like, okay, I'm now having a bad body image week. That's maybe not as normal. Like what's going on with me if I'm feeling like this consistently. And then I think for people in eating disorder recovery, it becomes, okay, I had a bad body image day, but now I'm engaging in behaviors that are a little bit sketchy. Like maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Um, and that's when it's like time to be like, okay, something's definitely, I really need to like sit down. And to me, that's what recovery is. Recovery isn't like, oh, every eating disorder thought is banished, but like, I would wish that it was like that, but it's more like, you know, okay, if I have an eating disordered thought, how do I keep that from becoming an eating disordered behavior? Um, how can I take care of myself so that that doesn't happen? Um, so yeah, bad body images. I've been having one today. I don't currently right now, but all day up until probably, I don't know, an hour and a half ago, I was like, Oh, I hate my body today. Um, that's real. That just happens. I think there are a few things that you can do one thing well, or that I can do. I can only speak for myself. I think that one thing is wearing clothes that make me feel good. So like I changed my clothes probably four times today until I found something that I was like, Oh, I feel good in this. Right. Me too. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's, having the same day. It is what it is. Okay. Well, I, I'm sorry that you're also having this day cause it's hard and it sucks. And we have to also just be honest about that. It sucks. Right. I did my hair like three times before I liked it. Um, I did my makeup a few times before I liked it, you know, just that doesn't, but then that gets to the point where it's okay. My whole day shouldn't be around making myself feel like I'm pretty like that's not, that shouldn't be my focus. Right. But that's one thing. It's figuring out what makes you feel good. Then it's also, um, if, if thinking about food for some people who are in recovery, I feel like thinking about food at all can be really overwhelming and triggering. If that's not the case, um, thinking about, okay, what foods make me feel good? What kind of foods, what are like, what am I craving today? Like what's actually going on in my body today? Cause I feel like when I have a bad body image day, I'll go, I'll, if I don't, think about it actively, I'll go one of either way because I had a restrictive eating disorder. Either I'll, I'll restrict or I'll do the exact opposite. And I'll be like, well, if I'm going to have a bad body machine, then I guess I may as well have pizza and cheesecake all day. And it's like, that's not really, that would be fine if I really wanted pizza and cheesecake all day, but like, I'm just doing it because I'm mad, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so just thinking, okay, what does my body actually need? I think that is true for food, but also physical activity. Like maybe I want to go for a walk. Maybe I really want to sleep. Maybe I'm going to do yoga or maybe I shouldn't do yoga today. Um, just thinking through those things for me, it's a lot of, um, sitting in my body because a lot of times when I'm having a bad body image day, I want to completely disassociate from my body. Like I want to not be in my body. So sometimes it's like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to feel my body. Not necessarily like literally, I mean, that could happen too. Sometimes people like really just actually touching your body is helpful, but like just, okay, I'm going to feel what it's like to sit in my body and like come back and like ground myself in that way. Um, also, the other day I went through my closet and finally, mostly it was mostly because I had no hangers left, but I finally went through my closet and took out anything that either didn't fit anymore or that I just don't wear. Like I was like, I'm going to take this out. I'm going to clear my closet. Sometimes doing things like that can be really helpful. Like what use is it for me to have clothes in my closet that I don't fit into? All they do is trigger me into thinking maybe someday I can fit into those clothes again. Then I'm like, that's ridiculous. Let me just get rid of the clothes. I'm not going to wear them. So there's no point in them sitting there. Um, 
So yeah, sometimes it can be something a little bit more like that. But I think that we all have to figure out what works for us and what we need when we're having a bad day. But really for me, the most num- the really the number one thing is just acknowledging that it's okay to have a bad body image day. It's not the end of the world. It's a day. And every day only has 24 hours. It'll be over. Um, something that I say a lot sometimes like in writing or elsewhere is um, when I have a bad day like that, whether it's a bad day like I engage in some behaviors that maybe weren't the best or if it's just I had a negative day like I felt sad um, about my body is like, okay, I'm going to forgive myself when I go to sleep. Like I'm going to lay in bed. I'm going to forgive myself for what happened today. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to do it in a way, you know, my first thought is going to be today is a new day. Today can be better. And I think not that like positive thought is like the, you know, the answer to everything, but I do think that that just being compassionate with yourself and being able to forgive yourself when things go wrong, I think is really, really important in recovery because it's never going to be perfect. So Mm, yeah, I think just that sentence right there, it's never going to be perfect, is so liberating because it's kind of this misconception that, you know, you'll get to this, you know, unicorn and fairy place where, like, you just love your body at your natural weight and you never veer from that. And that's just not true. And I think that illusion of, of that being true is what holds people back. And, and I think that's, that's what it was for me, you know, because I think when you have a day like that, you can be like, oh, and then it can become a week or it can be, it can, it can spiral. And so I think, you know, catching yourself in the moment and being like, so gentle with yourself and say, you know, oh, you just did your old thing again. Now you can change. Tomorrow is a new day. You know, yesterday was horrible, but today is better. And that's what I'm constantly, you know, sharing with, with the girls that I help and, and teach and, um, and women and, and yeah. So it's, it's definitely a process. And I think it's, it's really, really important to just talk about that that's an illusion and that none of us are perfect feminine feminists and none of us are perfect in recovery and just in (laughs) anything we do ever in life and I think just saying that and making that okay is is so amazing and then the thing you said about your clothes like that was huge for me like I I did that and I'm constantly doing that because my size is constantly you know it can it still can change but anytime I have something that I don't feel good and I'm not wearing and when I do put it on it doesn't fit me like I just immediately get rid of it because why why have that and it could it can only you know make you feel bad about yourself so yeah weird also I also should also say that my therapist told me something that I don't know to me was life-changing probably some people out there are gonna be like yeah Melissa duh but like I had never really thought about it when I was I had spoken to her about you know sometimes I have these really bad body image days and sometimes what that makes me think is if I'm gonna hate my body anyway I may as well be thinner. I'm already thin, right? But like, I may as well be as thin as I can be and hate it. Like, that's like, I, and she was like, okay, let's think about that. Um, and she was like, yeah, if during your eating, so she goes, when you, when you were sick, when you were out at your worst, did you feel good about your body? And I was like, no. And she was like, okay. She's like, did you feel good about anything else in your life? And I was like, no. And she was like, and now do you love your body? And I was like, not all the time. And she was like, but do you feel good about other things in your life? And I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and she's like, if you are going to have bad body image days regardless, wouldn't you rather have bad body image days but love your life otherwise and also have a healthy relationship with food? 
And I was like, that is a brilliant, I never thought about that. That is like, that is such a reframe that I had never considered that like, that I think about a lot when I have bad body image days that feel triggering. And I'm like, Oh, I could just slip right back into that old routine. And then I'm like, wait, but I, I still wouldn't be happy. I would still feel like this. In fact, I would feel worse. So even if I feel bad today, it's better than I would feel if I had an eating disorder. So I guess I may as well feel like this. And sometimes that also just helps me stay kind of in a more positive mindset around having a bad body image day. That's, that's great. Your, your therapist sounds like she is on point. And I'll share something that, that my therapist, my coach t- told me, um, because I had a lot of those similar thoughts of like, you know, just, just wanting to go back there. Want, like looking at, thinking about getting nostalgic almost for my, my old, not only my old physical body, but my old discipline and my old behaviors and organization, right? With all of that, which was really neurotic and strange yeah. and not healthy, but you know, you can still be nostalgic for that. Um, and I, she said something to me and I was like, because what you said there, you're like, you weren't happy with your body. And, and I kind of don't feel that way. Like, I feel like when I was at that low weight, I, I was happy with my body there. You know, I felt like I didn't like in every angle in a photo, I would be comfortable with the way it looked. And I, you know, everything I wore could, whatever it would like look great on me. And I, I just felt very much in the standard of beauty that our society reveres right now. So I, I felt like that. And anyway, so I was saying that to, to my therapist about how like, I do want to go back there sometimes. And I have those thoughts. And she said to me, you know, it's just like with an, an old relationship, you know, you might miss someone, but you only are remembering maybe the good parts. And she was like, maybe you're only remembering the good part of that. Like there was a lot of bad stuff that went with that too. And I just wasn't choosing to remember that in the moment. I was only focusing on this one physical element of it. So that was really helpful for me is to just look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's really helpful. And then also, you know, our, our mutual friend, Isabel Fox and Duke, you know, really focuses on this, but like our weight isn't really in our control. So, you know, the other thing that really helps me whenever I want to go back to old behaviors and actually take action on these negative thoughts that I'm having are uh, I stop myself always because I'm like, do I really have that much control over my body? You know, I could do all of those same things again, but maybe my physical body wouldn't even change or I would work my set point weight up even higher or I would just be neurotic and, you know, not fun to be around, but my, my body wouldn't even change. So what is the point, you know, and, and that's really helpful as well. Definitely. That's true. Yeah. So, um, all right. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about before we get into, um, some quick fire questions is you have this fantastic article that I shared, um, on Facebook the other day about um, eating disorder recovery and how that impacts people's relationships with their partners and with sex. And I would love if you could talk a little bit about that um, and dating from a um, recovered person perspective. Yeah. Dating's hard. Dating's always hard, right? Yeah. Uh, Dating is hard because part of what dating involves is vulnerability and, um, or relationship, maybe not but yeah, dating too. But like when you're forming a relationship with someone, part of that is about emotional risk taking. It's like being like, here's who I am. <laughs> so, cause we all have baggage, every single one of us, like, here's who I am. Um, here are some of the weird things that I do. <laughs> like that's just part of it. And, um, being in a relationship where you feel supported and feel like a person can hold that for you is so helpful. And I think that 
sometimes we fall into relationships where we feel like we can't share ourselves with someone else or we feel like they're not going to support us through our problems or they're not going to be there for us. And of course, the person that we're dating or the people that we're dating should never be, um, you know, our, our one and only support. We need an entire system of support. That's really important. But I think it's really, really necessary that the person or people that you decide to date or be in relationships with, um, are, uh, able to support you in a way that feels healthy for you. And part of that though, is having to be honest. And that's really, really difficult. Um, I've actually just read a couple of studies that actually say that people with eating disorders sometimes have a really hard time being honest with people because eating disorders are, they make us incredibly dishonest. I mean, we lie all the time when we have an eating disorder, it's constant lying and deception. Um, and you, that doesn't make for a healthy relationship. So it's, you know, having to think about how can I be honest about who I am and ask for the things that I need. So for example, I'm, my partner and I were in a long distance relationship and I'm, he lives in California and I'm going to California, um, next week. And just last night I was like, Hey, can we talk about food? Because I, I don't necessarily feel like I'm in a place that I could be triggered into like disordered habits, but like, I'm like, you know, I feel like I've been eating really weird lately and I kind of want to get back into a habit of like, just like eating in a way that feels good to me. I was like, and I don't want to go visit you and have that be disrupted. You know, like, Oh, now we're going out to eat every meal. Like that's going to make me really overwhelmed. So like, um, we're also probably sick. So like, what can we do about, um, about that? Right. And to have a partner that's like, okay, yeah, let's talk about it. Here's what I was thinking about food. What were you thinking about food? Like, that's really helpful. Um, but also sex is hard. Sex is always hard. It's hard for everybody. Um, having the eating disorder can really impact that in a lot of ways. Body image is one huge way. If you're feeling negative about your body, it's hard to share it with other people, right? So, um, but that's another thing where I think just like communication and honesty come into play. Like, this is how I'm feeling. Hey, I want to keep my shirt on right now. I want to keep the lights off right now um, is okay. And making sure that your partner respects that because if your partner doesn't respect your boundaries, they're not a good person, um, <laughs> but, or partner. So yeah, but I think that a lot of it has to do with knowing yourself and being able to share what you know about yourself with somebody else who respects that is kind of the, the key. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's really great. And this stuff isn't talked about enough at all. I think relationships and recovery and just people with stuff with food and in, in general, I really like that you shared that about discussing food with your partner, because I know that was something for me that, you know, I, I was in a relationship during my eating disorder. And, um, that was always a weird thing for me. Like I had this thing where I felt like I didn't deserve to eat unless someone else was, would say it first. So I would never be like, I'm hungry. But like, if he was like, I'm hungry, then we could eat, you know, like I would just, that was my weird thing, even before I was really into the behaviors with it. Um, and so I really like that you like have that conversation. Like it might, you know, be seem like it's going to be uncomfortable, but it probably won't be. And if it is, then like the person's not a good 
partner, you know, for you and um, just own that. And like I heard on this podcast or something, who knows where I heard this, but this couple and did this thing and this sounded really great. And maybe you can do this with with your partner. Um, But they were saying that like whenever they're out or they, they traveled a lot, that was it. And they were saying, you know, when they were traveling, so no one gets hangry, right? They would be like, you know, they would have a scale and they're like, where are you? And the one would be like, I'm like a five. And then like on the hunger scale to like 10. And then if the other person was like, I'm a 10, they'd be like, all right, we should go eat, you know, to honor that, you know? And I thought that that was really nice that they had that like language in their, that love language together in their relationship that was really like, you know, look, this is where I'm at, this is where you are, and it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm kind of hungry. I could, you know, it just was, like, very direct, and I I thought that that was kind of brilliant, so. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's really smart. Yeah, very cool. And then, you know, one other thing on the this vein of relationships is, like I said before, you know, for me, my last relationship, I was in the re- in the eating disorder and then the recovery, and then, you know, going into my next relationship and in the future in my life with this being, you know, my work, it's kind of clear that I, I talk about this stuff, you know, publicly like we are right now, um, and and you as well. But you know, if that wasn't the case for us, or even though it is, you know, that how do you bring that up with a new partner, and how does how is that conversation? And do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I get that question a lot. How do I tell my partner about my eating disorder past? I think it really differs for every person, but I think there are a couple of avenues to take. One is to like have the sit down, serious conversation. It's like, I really need to talk to you about something um, that's about me. I don't do that for my eating disorder, but I definitely do that for other things in my life. That's like, hey, I actually want to talk to you about something um, that's about me. Or when it comes up, like either it's 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 at a boiling point for me, like I want to bring it up or something comes up that makes me go, oh, I need to address that part of my past now. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like honest about, I think that being honest and saying this might be a difficult conversation, um, helps. Um, I think that giving people the option, like letting them know, I'm going to tell you some things. And if you don't have a response to it right now, that's okay. Um, let me know when you do, or if you have any questions can be helpful. I, with my partner right now, um, sometimes when we go out on dates, I make it a point like, I think that dates, I think that when you go out on dates with a partner, I think it's important to keep up the let's get to know each other thing or that's important to me so sometimes if we're out on a date I'll like be like okay we're gonna broach some intense subjects because um we're gonna get to know each other sometimes that's a place um I don't think most people want to do that but sometimes I do because it's like we're out we're having fun we're in a place that's like a public place we're probably not gonna fall apart crying you know Mm -hmm. um so that can be nice it could also be nice to be in a place where you can fall apart crying so but for me I kind of just bring it up I just bring it up. Like, I just like, you know, I just, I make sure that it comes up really fast because it's a, it's a big part of what I do for work. It's a big part of, you know, my experience and who I am. So it's like just mentioning it, you know, casually, not that it's a casual thing, but you know, that conversation can build over time. I think that what people fear is I have this big secret or this big thing about me. And I don't know how to, especially when you're first dating someone, people are like, I don't want to Right. a huge pile on somebody. And it's like, you don't have to, you can just, you can just say, because yeah, you're right on a second date to be like, let me tell you my eating disorder story. If they didn't ask and they have no idea that you even have an eating disorder, just throw that on them. Yeah. That's going to be a little weird for them. That's like not, it's gonna be hard. That's really intense. Um, but just throwing out like, Oh yeah, well I had an eating disorder when I was such and such years old or, you know, whatever. And then letting that conversation build over time is okay. Like that's an okay thing to do. So 
I think it's kind of just giving people permission to have that conversation in a way that feels good for them. Obviously, yeah, you want to take the other person into account. Um, but knowing that this is someone who potentially cares for you and you're telling them something that's sad that, and it's going to make them sad. And I think also being in a place ourselves where we can kind of um, anticipate that this is going to upset the other person. Not that they're going to be mad at you, but they're going to be upset because you're saying, hey, I'm someone that you love or care about or like or whatever, and I'm telling you something that was hard for me in my life. It's a normal reaction for the other person to feel bad. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that makes me sad. Um, but being making sure that you're in a place where you can deal with that um, and kind of hold that space for them while they're, they should also be holding space for you, but making sure that you can hold space for the fact that they're going to be sad, um, is also really important. But yeah, just figuring out what makes you comfortable, what makes you feel like you're in a safe space to have this conversation. Um, and any way that you go about doing it is, I think if you're having that conversation in any way, you're doing a really brave thing because not all people are going to disclose that information. So just the fact that you want to disclose that means that you're doing something really great. Um, and so however you do it, that makes sense for you is awesome. Yeah. I think it's like everything else we've talked about on this podcast that, you know, the answer is kind of going to be different for everybody. There's no like, you know, third date, you sit down and you cross your leg to the right and, you know, bring it up. But, um, yeah, I think that that was that was all really great, and just kind of feeling out the situation is is really important. And it we all kind of want a, a cookie cutter response for it, but um, there really isn't one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Well, I want to wrap with some really fun quick fire questions, but first, I just want to thank you so much. I think you're awesome, and I really appreciate everything you shared. So these are some fun questions. So just say the first thing that comes to mind. Cool. Okay, I'm ready. All right, favorite color? Yellow. Favorite day of the week and why? Oh, damn. Um, uh, I don't know, probably Saturday because it's Saturday. I don't have to work for a couple days. <laughs> yeah. um, what's the best Halloween costume you've ever been or ever seen? When I was 14, I think, 13, 14 years old, I was a dictionary. Oh, very cool. <laughs> How did you do that? Was it was it like a cardboard box? box? It was a box, yeah, but I made it, or my mom made it, but it could open, and it had the definitions for a trick-or-treat and Happy Halloween. Oh, and like, <laughs> that is so <laughs> cool. That is so cool. What's your favorite thing about yourself? Um, that I'm smart. Very cool. Um, where would you like to see feminism in 10 years, or where do you think it would will be? I would like to see feminism in a spot where everybody's feminism was intersectional and everybody understood that it's more than just your gender identity that affects like how you are perceived in the world. Very cool. So you're stranded on an um, island mm-hmm. and you can only bring with you one book, one food, one person, and one TV show to binge watch. So make sure there are things you won't get sick of. Go. Okay. One book. Um, I would probably do something like the complete works of like William Shakespeare or something. Cause that would be very long. Um, and it's a little bit complex. So I think that that would be something that I wouldn't get bored of. Practical choice. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Being practical here. One, wait, what else do I have to pick? One person? Yep. I guess, can I bring my cat? No, I have to bring a human. I, I guess my partner, like, I feel like uh, that's like a corny answer, but I guess maybe my partner. Um, okay. One food. Ah, shit. Um, food. French toast is what's, like, coming to mind. So probably that must be what yeah. I just go say. with your gut. Go <laughs> with your gut. That must be it. 
I want to say something more practical than French toast, but. And then, wait, what's my last one? TV show? TV show, probably Degrassi. <laughs> oh, classic. Very nice. Um, what's your number one tip to feel confident? Number one tip to feel confident is uh, to be yourself. That's like such a corny answer. But yeah, to be yourself, to be, to present to the world the thing that makes you feel good inside. Mm. Mm. So good. Okay. What is one thing that you struggle with about yourself or your life or you want to improve or change in your life right now? Probably my relationship with my body. I think my relationship with food is good. My relationship with my body goes through some ups and downs I'd like to even out. Same. Me too. I think that's very vulnerable and helpful for you to share because I think we all um, can feel better about our own bodies knowing that we're not the only one feeling that way about our bodies. Yeah, that's real. Um, what's the back to food? What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? Oh man. The last week. What have I eaten this week? Um, Oh, okay. Let me tell you today. I made some roasted potatoes, but I've been thinking about these, making these roasted potatoes for like a week. I don't know why it took me so long to finally just roast some potatoes, but I did. And they were great because I wanted them so bad for so long. Isn't that the best when you're like excited about something and then you make it and you're, and it's just as good as you expected yeah, exactly it to be. You wanted. Yeah. That's Amazing. Um, okay. What is the time in your life that you have laughed the hardest? Even if it was like an inside joke, we won't get. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I definitely, I had a, a relationship, my like two relationships before this one, I, the person that I was dating then is probably the funniest person ever. And just, I feel like every night would just like crack, crack me up to like, I, I don't even know what he would say that was funny, but like everything that he said to me was hilarious. Aww. <laughs> So the entire relationship was when I laughed the most in my life. <laughs> Are you guys still friends? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're not enemies. <laughs> we're not yeah, on yeah. Enemies. Yeah. I know how that I know how that goes with relationships. It'd be cool though. I was just asking because it'd be cool if you could still get his jokes. <laughs> I know, right? I think about that sometimes. But, you know. <laughs> um, favorite song or one that like you can think of recently that's been on your playlist? Uh I don't know. Growing up, I really liked, um, weirdly, I really liked Strangers in the Night by Frank Sinatra. Like, I would listen to that song on repeat. Like, I could never uh-huh. think of it. I don't know why. I still feel that way when I hear it. I'm like, oh, I love this song. It's uh-huh. like, it's a, such a random song, though, but yeah. That's great. Favorite movie or favorite movie recently? Jurassic Park. Very cool. <laughs> favorite book? Um, that's complicated. I feel like the answer, though, when I ever have to do it as a password protection, like security question, is yeah. the- I shouldn't have said that out loud. Now you <laughs> back into my accounts, but The Giver by Lois Lowry. Oh, I loved that book. I loved that book. That was a classic too. Um, all right. Well, the last question I always ask everyone, as you know, the name of this podcast and the name of my blog is The Wellness Wonderland. So when I ask you that question, Melissa, to live in a wellness wonderland, what comes up? What does that mean to you? I think that living in a wellness wonderland means living in a, 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 um, a situation of like health, but that like health, not the way that our society defines health, but that health is like this holistic, um, hmm, contentment. I think that's emotional, it's physical, it's spiritual. It's all of those things. It's like, I am living in a space in my life, in myself where I feel like I'm taken care of. And I feel like I am healthy, whatever that means for like you personally, rather than what it means for everybody else around you. I love that definition. I love everything you shared. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for coming on my podcast. Thank you. I really so appreciate it. It took us so long to schedule this. So I'm so excited that it finally happened. It's been like months in the making. So it's huge. I know. It's amazing. And I'm so glad you were here. This was, this was so great. 
Thanks for listening. You made it all the way to the end. I'll be back next week, but until then, let's stay inspired and keep this conversation going. So tweet at me at Katie Dalebout and our guest with your aha moments from this conversation. And like the Wellness Wonderland on Facebook so we can all hang out there and discuss how inspired we are and how we'll apply it in our daily lives. And never miss another episode or post from me by signing up for email updates on thewellnesswonderland.com. See you back in Wonderland.